Hello, listeners, and welcome to Closing Time, the podcast that provides an inside look at the world of healthcare startups and venture capital. I'm Hallie Tecco. And I'm Michael Esquivel. Each episode, we get the privilege of meeting entrepreneurs at the forefront of healthcare innovation. You get to eavesdrop on pitches that are reshaping healthcare from founders daring to think differently. So pull up a chair and join us as we journey into the future of healthcare, one pitch at a time. Today, we have a special guest VC, my good friend, Greg Yap, a partner at Menlo VC, where he focuses on digital health and life sciences. Since joining in 2017, Greg has led Menlo's investments in various companies, including Clear Labs, Encoded Therapeutics, H1 Insights, Particle Health, Riva Health, and many others. He has also been involved in investments in Benchling, Recursion Pharmaceuticals, and Cofactor Genomics. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And of course, today's founder is my very dear friend, the one and only Giovanni Colella, a longtime digital health leader and founder. He has founded numerous companies, including Relay Health, Uda Health, Brightline, Castlight, of course, and many others. And today, uh, he's here to share his new project. He's now working on a new startup called Vana Health which uses psychosocial rehabilitation at scale to improve outcomes and reduce healthcare costs. Giovanni, so excited for you to be here today, my friend. We're excited to learn more about your new company. Can you start by giving us the elevator pitch and what inspired you to start Vana Health? Yes. Yes. First of all, thank you very much for inviting me. It's truly an honor to be here with you and how I mean, I've known both of you for a long time and I admire the different fields and the different things you've done. So thank you, thank you. And nice to meet you, Greg. One of the few venture capitalists I haven't met yet. So I have a lot of scars on my back here. Let's get into Vanna. Vanna is, uh, uh, it's to me a very interesting story because it's really close to my heart. And Vanna, let's start by saying Vanna is my mom's name, Maria Giovanna. And Vanna took care of my dad who was uh, seriously mentally ill and a man who... Every time I talk, I get a little emotional about him and not on a podcast. I'll try not to, but he committed suicide. And so he lost his battle uh, to serious mental illness. And I lived through that my entire life, right? It's not, I lived through the mental illness. I've lived through the ups and downs. I lived through things that you don't talk about and uh, you try to keep inside. And then you come to America, you're, a, you're an immigrant. You always try to put on a good face. And I lived my entire life trying to show that I was okay and that my family, everything was fine. And uh, this all came to an end at one point. You know, you start companies, you, I'm a physician by training. I, have a, I say this in a very humble way, but I've achieved the things that I wanted to achieve when I came to this country, wonderful marriage, everything working well. And deep inside, there was a lot of unhappiness and uh, a lot of well, okay, money doesn't really do it. Family is great, but I have memories there and trauma that I need to work on. So it was my wonderful wife who on a, at one point, I remember I was talking to Michael actually, because I had sold, uh, I had sold me and my team had sold Uda and, uh, I was, what am I going to do? I was 60 at that point, 64 obviously I didn't need to work anymore. And uh, we were walking the streets of Milan, my wife and I, and I said, well, maybe I'll raise, I had raised that there was already I had term sheets for a fund to raise some money, try to compete with Greg and 
people like him. And my wife told me, Giovanni, that's not you. That's absolutely not you. And you need to come to terms once and forever for with your past, with the ghosts and whatever is in there. And what you know how to do is to start a company. That's, you know, we do our own share of charity and all that kind of stuff. But you're not going to run a non-for-profit. That's not what you know. So I said, you're right. And remember, Michael, I gave up the term you sheets did. and everything. And I said, let's uh, let's start. Uh, and they have to say, the investors were great. The limited, the ones that were going to be limited partners were fantastic. They were totally understanding. And I launched Vanna Health. The goal of Vanna is to provide services, treatment, and outcomes to people like my dad. And I do believe that in the for-profit world, there is a space which turns out to be a huge space for the psycho rehabilitation model. And uh, I can delve, dive into more how we do this in the, um, you know, as we keep going. But the idea is we're going to take risk on these patients. We're going to take full risk and we are going to serve them in the right way and rehabilitate them, help them get back into society, help them have the life that my dad didn't have. And uh, we're focused mostly on the poor, mostly Medicaid, although we do some commercial. Because first of all, we believe that the poor are the ones that need it the most and they are the most expensive one. And second, we also believe that that's where we have a, the bar is so low. I sad to say that, that from a business standpoint, the improvements can be, I could show you the numbers, just unbelievable. So we launched the company. We raised money. And we did a series that well, we did on, you know, the usual stuff. But I don't want to bore you with that. We did a seed round. And then after the seed round, we did a series A round. And now we're out there and going. We are doing, we're doing pilots in two states. Well, one state launching the second state. And now we're in the process of negotiating with a couple of big national payers, national scale. So time will tell. As every startup, there's the ups and downs and... We are still staring at the abyss while eating glass some days and uh, enjoying every moment of the journey. Wow, Giovanni. You know, thank you for sharing your personal background. I think we all know you as this extremely successful, strong founder and to kind of hear some of the the trauma that you've been through and that your family has been through is is really powerful. And I'm sorry that that's been your experience and um, I'm just so encouraged to see you put that energy into something and show it it's never too late. You could retire, but instead <laughs> you're doing more. You're doing it again, which is great. Could you give us a sense of where um, where care is? You said the bar is really low today. Where Where is it? Can you just describe to us like the standard of care sure. for low-income Americans who are dealing with mental health issues. Yeah. So just let me start by saying that if you have serious mental illness now and you're Medicaid, your average life expectancy is anywhere between 25 to 35 years less than what all of us have. So we're talking about a crime here. Also, uh, it's the, the staggering cost, uh, depending on how you look at it, we're talking about 350 to 400 billions a year just on waste on comorbidities on these patients. If you, the high cost is really not that much in the mental illness side, which is high, but it's the repeat use of emergency rooms, comorbidities, you know, they all have, I, I just this morning I was reviewing, I, st I um, obviously now we have a chief medical officer and all that, but I still f 
try to play the doctor sometimes. And uh, I'm a psychiatrist by training, by the way. So this is my field. And uh, uh, which, you know, you could think a little bit about why I went into psychiatry. But uh, it's, I had a patient that had a hemoglobin A1C of, uh, I think it was, I don't remember exactly now, but it was something like 18. Wow. I mean, this is staggering, staggering. And uh, this poor guy was in the streets of Philadelphia. It just gives you an idea of what, what are the kind of people we're seeing. And this, it shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen. Nobody, nobody in the richest country in the world should have an hemoglobin A1C like that. Nobody in the richest country in the world should have cholesterol out of control. Nobody in the richest country in the world should have no place to go at night because they're psychotic because there's no reason why they should be psychotic. There's no reason why you should be hearing voices now. We have great medication. The good news is science has brought us to a place that we didn't have when my dad was sick. You know, my dad just had all kind of medications that made no sense. Now, if you're wealthy and you're schizophrenic, you can have a normal life. You can live your normal life. You can live well. You can succeed. The, the level of care for these patients is so bad that I call it a crime. It's a modern society crime. I'm, uh, believe me, look, I, again, I'm not, I love America. Uh, this country gave me everything. I truly believe in capitalism, but there are some monstrosities that need to be corrected. And this is one of them. Giovanni, maybe you could talk a little bit about your care model, because I, I, obviously I know it includes both virtual care and some in-person care, some group care, you know, kind of a holistic wrapper of, of, of services. I'd love to, to understand that a little better. For yeah, viewers. thank you, Greg. Uh, so the reality is though virtual, there's very little. This is high intensity service model. I told this to every investor, don't expect the 70, 80% gross margins that my other companies could have being software. This one is service, people, hands-on, the care model is psychosocial. So what happens is, let's say, we'll, I'll give you, I'll describe you the process of one patient. So we get a download of the claims of a patient, and then we go through all these, we'll see the cost, we understand what is the morbidity that we're trying to treat, and we see what the comorbidities are. We draw the line at a certain level, like any patient that is costing more, let's pick a number now. I don't want to go into the details of the numbers because... I, you know, with different payers, we work in different ways, but let's say $10,000 a year more. And that patient gets assigned to Vanda. And Vanda has a case manager that immediately either if we have the email or if we know where the patient goes in terms of churches or communities or things like that, we reach out to this patient and we try to engage the patient. The hardest part of our model is engagement. That's why I say you got to be there in person. This is human contact and you have to hire People from the community, people that look like them, think like them, live like them. So a lot of them are peers. And they. this patient gets assigned to us. And we make sure that the patient has two things that are of paramount importance. The first one is no gaps in care anymore. And what I mean by that, when the patient goes into the emergency room, they comes out come out with a prescription for five days. First of all, they don't fill it up. Second, even if they do, they have five days. And in order to get to a provider, when you medicate, it takes a month. So we have a physician and immediately that patient gets assigned to us. There's no more gaps in care. Just that saves a ton of money. The moment the patient runs out of his prescription, our physician can prescribe, can take care of it. We have clinical nurse specialist who's going to take care of it. And the case manager becomes their advocate. 
make sure that they go and see their internist. We, I make it very clear. I learned this the hard way at Relay. I make it very clear. We do not compete with the providers. We actually bring them patients, the community centers, the CBHCs, all these groups out there that need patients. They want patients because they get reimbursed. We bring them the patient. We make sure that they, the patients goes to them. Center to what we do is the clubhouse model. Clubhouse model, Clubhouse was started in New York. It's a fountain house. That's the biggest one. And if there's no clubhouse, we make sure there is a clubhouse in the city. And if we have to, we build it. We're lucky now that we found cities where there are clubhouses. Clubhouse is a place, place where the patient can go every day, have a job, work in the garden, work like my dad was a photographer. He would have his photography shop. They would train him. They would make them work. They have an existence. They have what we call the three Ps, people, place, and purpose in life. Those are the three Ps that keep you alive. And, it, and it's they're followed in the clubhouse every day. We make sure they go there every day. And back to the health plan, we say, look, this patient last year had diabetes, hypertension, was in the emergency room three times. We've decreased your cost dramatically. We go on a PMPM for two years. And then after the two years, we go into risk sharing. And the more the risk sharing goes, the lower the PMPM goes. And we could work on the numbers there. Believe it or not, the complexity of the system is such that sometimes you really have to... Everybody knows that this works, but the political environment is such that, well, we can't do the PMPM because of this. We can't do... What I tell the team is no is never an answer. There's never an answer. We're not going to let this go by and we, we want to change the system. So we're succeeding in the two states we are. We're up to governors. We talk. One other advantage of doing it at a late age and after several companies is you have a ton of connections. I'm not saying that because I'm good. It's just the fact that when you've been in the space for 30 <laughs> years and people know you, you're old. And so there's a lot of connections. So we're up to the governors. We're talking right in the right office. We're in... Tom Insel, who you all know, is you know is co-founder with me. He's on my board. We, our board of directors is, we have you know the former CEO of the World Bank. We have a lot of powerful people. Not because we love powerful people, actually I don't particularly, but that's life. But they help me. They can help with all the connection that a poor Italian immigrant trying to make a living can't can't get on his own. So I hope that big picture, Greg, answers your question. I This is fascinating. I haven't heard of the clubhouse model. Um, you said you find cities with existing clubhouses. So these aren't places that you're running. You're partnering with existing nonprofits that have yeah. these resources. So the clubhouse model, it's really something everybody should know of. It is the solution of the problem. And unbelievably, for now, it's not reimbursed by Medicaid. That's why you don't see it. It's just absurd. Uh, Fountain House, the numbers, they love data. We actually hired their former CMO to be our chief medical officer. So we know it in and out. It's unbelievable what they save you in money and what they give you. You should go, if you don't know it, if you're ever in New York, you should go and visit. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a testament to what you can do. And thankfully now, the new CEO of Fountain House, who's somebody who comes from the Obama administration, he's very, very involved. He's scaling this finally. So hell, we hell it. So we don't build for now our own clubhouses. That's we will. That's my goal. Uh, and the next round of financing, the way I would like to structure it is actually I want to get 
really into building them. It's very cheap to build them. It's very cheap. All you need is, you know, it's, I, I could I could build them. You need a little bit of real estate and then you need the case managers in it. But for now, we are relying to clubhouses that already exist because Fountain House has launched a national, actually a worldwide movement and they're coming up. They're popping up everywhere. So we, we're, we're bucking the trend. We're going in and we're, we're working with them. Hopefully soon Medicaid, there's a plan to start reimbursing it. New York City is the first one now that is going to increase the reimbursement for uh, clubhouses. You'll see a lot of them popping up there. And that's, I mean, it's just unbelievable how well they work. You go there, it brings tears to your eyes. You see people that didn't have a life, didn't have anything that go there. I, our chief medical officer was their chief medical officer for 30 years. He is, when you go there with him, he's actually was my classmate. So he's exactly my age. I know him very, very super well. Super young guy, super he, young guy. Yeah, all young guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we have a lot of young guys too and a lot of women too, make no mistakes. But Love it. Uh, he is... Uh, when you go there, there are patients that recognize him. It's touching. Dr. Akira, Dr. Hero. I mean, they, they, they're all, and he knows them all by first name. I mean, that's the kind of treatment that you need to have. So virtually we can do, I mean, we're looking now to do more digital stuff. Of course, we're looking at every possible AI model because that's just cool and see if we can do it. But I don't, I don't see how in the short term, this type of patient population will benefit you have to think it's difficult, right? Because you don't want to give out phones, right? Because let's face it, a lot of substance abuse here. So they sell the phone to buy substances. You, you, we're not talking with an easy patient population to treat. That, and the patient population that is exceedingly skeptical about anybody wanting to help them. Because if you lived your entire life with everybody telling you that you're stupid because you're sick, like pretty much my dad did, and you have no means... Who is this white guy from San Francisco that is coming here and telling us I'm going to help you? No trust. Zero. And they, they're right. Yeah. What limits the, what's the rate limiter on your ability to help people, right? Is it clubhouse volume? Is it people, coaches, you know, psychiatrists? Yeah. What, what limits? <laughs> you name them all. You name them all. But the psychiatrist is not that much. We're also doing partnership with residency training programs so we can train the psychiatrist uh, uh, that come through and, and there's a lot of psychiatrists now that want to do community work. And the good news is there's what I work. So there's very good news. I'm finding out that there's a lot of young people and psychiatrists that are inspired by what we're doing. There's a lot of good people in this world. I mean, everybody's looking at how horrible the situation politically is in America and this and that. When you go down deep, there's actually really good people that really want to do good work. So if you inspire them and you give them work, it's not easy. It's like we posted for a case manager a job description in Philadelphia. We had 90, 90 people applying in one day, in one day. So that's, you know, and this is a good economy. It's not that they need jobs, right? So this is good. The rate limiting factor, Greg, is probably case managers. That's the biggest one. They're very difficult. So first of all, case managers have a phenotype that is very different than mine. We want people of color. We want people uh, Latinos. Or we want people who have had experience. And by definition, if you're a peer, you're somebody who has had experience with mental illness or something like that. So it makes you challenging in a workspace where we need consistency, right? So we're mixing that with peer people that are not peers, but the turnover is high and uh, 
you know, the cultural gap is high too. There's a lot of trust building there that needs to happen. And, you know, it's like if I'm recruiting for my other companies, my negotiation was all about how many stock options you get and when can I have an exit. In this case, it's all about I need to make my paycheck week to week. I can't, I mean, I was interviewing one the other day that says something that broke my heart. I said, so what do you want from me? I said, I always ask a candidate, what can I give you to make sure you have the best professional experience of your life? I've always done this in all my companies. And she looks at me, she says, promise me that I'll be safe. I said, what do you mean by that? She says, well, my husband was shot and I have two kids and I can't go in some neighborhoods because I'm scared. I just don't want that. I said, she was shot. Yeah, on the corner of our street. And she said, oh, no, no. Then she said, I realize you don't understand these things, but people get shot here. This is what, you know, she walked out one day to bring out dog or something and he was shot dead. And I have two kids. I'm like, so I said, I promise you safety. But, you know, that's promise you safety. Yeah, to a certain extent. We're in bad neighbors. We're in areas in Philadelphia where, you know, people carry guns. And so that's the rate limiting factor. It's not going to stop us, but it's not, this is not the sexy company, you know, that uh, cool open AI, nothing against open AI. I love them, but uh, you know, it's not, we're not as cool. Let's so, face so Giovanni, it. from a business model perspective, then are these uh, case managers and coaches, these are employees or are you treating them as contractors? Yeah. I mean, cause, cause that consistency no, no. requires all, an employee I, type relationship, I would think. Yeah, no, we want employees. They, I want to give them healthcare benefits. This has to be their, this thing, they need to feel, see, in Silicon Valley, feel people feel the ownership because they have stock. That they feel it, right? At least until they sell their stock. Here, that doesn't work. They need to feel that this is a family for them. And I really mean it, that this is a place where they can change the world. So many times we talk about changing the world, and this time we really mean it, right? For the once, once I say it has the added value of being true, we really want to change the world, at least the world that we work in now, right? And I want my son one day to look up to and say, you know, I love you not just because you bought me a lot of toys, but I love you because what you what what you've done built has built something that has a legacy, has something big. And I gave him my mom's name because I knew that that would motivate me in the hardest moments. Because let's face it, when you live in San Francisco in a nice place, yeah, yeah, it's it's not like when I started my first company, right? So I knew that when when that famous hammer would hit my head because something would go wrong, which inevitably happens. Greg, you've been around a while. Hallie, you've seen many startups. You know, it's, anybody who tells you there's a smooth ride, the Hollywood version doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. It's impossible, absolutely impossible. But when you're already sitting in a very comfortable position, you need something more than that, than more than just the money at the end to motivate you, which honestly to me means nothing now. And so my mom's name would, is something, you know, she's the one that made me who I am, who gave me my life, who protected me and my sister who I'm exceedingly close to. And uh, so I will not, a good Italian kid never drops his mom. That's for sure. So inspirational, Giovanni. I mean, it, uh, it's really moving and I can see the emotion uh, as you, as you tell us the story. Yeah, I get a little, when I talk uh, about yeah, that, I, I, yeah, I have I, this picture I can, there. I can, it's, like, I can, it's palpable coming, coming through the screen. He was a hot, he was a good man. He was really a good man. It's just, he had his demons, right? And when you're a kid, it's oh, whatever. Yeah. Also, you know what's really hard, and I hope people, it's hard not being able to talk about it. It was now that I'm open about it and everything. My sister and I were always like, yeah, my father died. Yeah, nobody, it's, it, it was not only a suicide, it was a horrible suicide. And we, yeah, he died. 
died. That's how we talked about it. And so everybody, as you said, always saw me as the guy who's always smiling, who's always saying I'm a fantastic and things like that. But then at night you're staring at the at the wall and you're saying, if I didn't have my wife, I would be like a disaster now some moments. So Giovanni, knowing that, what are you doing for the families of the patients that you're serving? Well, so unfortunately, many of these patients don't have families. We try to create social networks. We try to get them involved. Yeah, but the families, whenever there is a family, they have to be involved 100%. Unfortunately, many of these patients, I mean, it's not that they don't have families. Families have lost track of them. They don't want to, a lot of families are resistant to have them around. There's still a lot of stigma. In, In our social demographics, I'm noticing much less stigma now in the lower social demographics and people of you know not as educated as us and things like that it's it's just that there's a big stigma on mental illness and so i've been personally because i i also go to the house of these patients i remember one mom telling me i want nothing to do with him he said he's crazy he's crazy he's a crack addict and this wasn't even taking crack he was a crack addict so what do you do i'm gonna do you know so you gotta work on it and uh try to get them involved. If it's a higher social demographics, then family is of paramount importance. You cannot, you cannot improve the life of these people without their family. One of the things that I, I've found really interesting and challenging about this sector, right, is that the, the, they, they, are in the, they are in the clinical situation they're in because of severe mental illness, but the behavioral health treatment is actually a relatively small part of the cost, right? And so by mm-hmm. by getting them more you treatment, you actually drive up behavioral health utilization, can actually drive up costs in that specific narrow segment of their healthcare. But the value is really felt in other areas. The physical health you know, is where a lot of the costs seem to come. And so how have you thought about that, both from a you know delivery of care, but you know, perhaps more importantly from a startup perspective? You know, a, you know, how do you how do you communicate that return the ROI to the payers? You know, how do you think about in the fee for service world versus value based care world? You know, that the mixed world that we live in. Yeah, no, you're you know, absolutely it, right, Greg. You you nailed it. That's where we spent months before starting the company studying this. So we don't take we don't take on a uh, a plan or a patient if they don't give us the total cost of care. Just limiting, and we tell we tell patient we. It's actually turning out that. The, we don't increase that much the cost of behavioral health, but you're absolutely right. We say at the beginning, you're going to see a spike in the behavioral health, but you're going to see a drop in the medical side. So we take risk on the total cost of care. If it's not total cost of care, no, it doesn't work. It has to be carve-outs are slowly being eliminated now. Health plans understand that. There's some states that still have them. In Philadelphia, they still have a carve-out. But what we did is we did a deal with the behavioral health group in Philadelphia and the health plans that have the total cost, that have the medical side. And who's actually paying us is the medical side. It's not the behavioral health plan. The behavioral health plan is a city-run plan and very well-funded. They're happy. We hope because we're providing better care, we're delivering, they care less about the little increase in cost. The health plans that are paying us are the ones that are going to see, hopefully, we're going to show it at the end of this year, a drop in cost, which we think is going to be pretty dramatic. I think once we start publishing the first numbers, it's going to be a turning point for us because it's going to, and if we can close these deals with the big players, with payers, which is a big deal. And, you know, part of this and. I, I, look, I don't want to get into politics, but the fee-for-service world is malignant. 
it's you know it's just really 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 bad if we had to design if i think we were let's put it this way if we all agree let's say that we had to redesign the healthcare system today all of us we would design in a very different way than America has it today. And so part of it is the payers are incentivized in the wrong way. And even if they say they want to go to total cost of care, they really are, it's the way they look at it is more lipstick on a pig. And so it's not really total cost of care. And I can't blame only them. Providers are not ready for the total cost of care. So it's not just that the payers are malignant. It's just, you know, it's the famous thing. Don't tell people to do something that goes against where their paycheck comes from. And so the incentives are all misaligned. My hope is that Vanna will make history on this. I mean, we're, uh, there's plenty, by the way, of models that take uh, uh, value-based and internal medicine and other things that work really well. They're really, and they're proving that they can work by any means. I don't want to say that I'm the first one. In behavioral health, I haven't seen it yet, especially in the SMI. We're trying to do something that nobody else has done before. And uh, that's okay. We did it before in other companies. That's that's part of the fun. So I think I answered your question, right, Greg? The, the trick yeah. here is total cost yeah. of care. Yeah. And I think the, the other piece to it is the, you you then, because it's total cost of care, you're touching so many other potential. You know, every Every person has their own journey. Every person has their own medical issues. And so how do you how do you how do you get to them all of the care that they need when that care could be with some well, you know, we have a uh, you know we have a company that works on opioid use disorder we have another company that works Ooh, on hypertension <laughs> yeah these are they're, they're very diverse areas you yeah. may have patients a few patients that have each of these things you know how do you deliver yeah. the appropriate care to the appropriate patient yeah no no uh, first of all i commend you for investing in a in an opioid disorder it's it's a really tough field we we so it's interesting. We only provide care only for the gaps of care. We actually we would work with your company. We take patients to your company. We take patients to where the care is delivered. We just make sure the patient doesn't get their care delivered in the emergency room. We make sure they get it in the appropriate place at the appropriate time. But we're not care that we we're going to have very few doctors and very few nurses on staff. But we want to make sure that there's absolutely no gap in that care. That's the way you get the patient engaged. For us. Patient engagement is key. We're like a, an engagement to us. When I speak to plants at the end of the day, they say, well, this is what our case managers already do. I said, yeah, but look at the streets, look at your cost, look at what you're doing. We're not reinventing the wheel. We are really pushing the psychosocial rehabilitation modeling care that no payer is doing now. I promise you, when I talk to payers about Fountain House, they don't even know what it is. One of the biggest players in the United States, I have to be, I give them credit the CEO of their behavioral group came with me in person to Fountain House, spent the whole day there, and he had no idea that this existed. And immediately after that, he said, well, we need to rethink our strategy with SMI. So we're educating the payers too on this, right? We're educating them on a field that no, no, nobody paid attention. When there was a Carvel, we, I was practicing psychiatry. And I was at Columbia doing my fellowship there. And I thought the carvel was the best thing since sliced bread because it would actually allow us to focus on these patients. Well, what really happened is it created a little small group of people that nobody really cared about in the carvel because the big cost is on the medical side. And so it was nobody cared. Nobody gave a hoot about this patient. And they're difficult. They smell bad. They spit on you. They're, they're, they're ugly. They can insult you sometimes. These are not nice people, Right. They're human beings. They're wonderful human beings, but they're not nice. So nobody cared. Until now, I think COVID also opened up the fact that these are costing us a fortune. 
And so parents are saying, oh, wow, there is something here. A good, interesting thing. In the past year, every RFP from states for Medicaid wants a SMI behavioral health piece to it, which has increased the demand for our services. Because I think, no, actually, there's another company that is our competitor. They're excellent, too. Really great entrepreneur. Love to compete with people like that. Hard in the right place. Really good. I think we're the only two ones doing this. I think their name is Firsthand. If you ever get a, the entrepreneur is fantastic. Samir is his name. Great guy. Great guy. So, Giovanni, you alluded to this, switching gears a little bit. You alluded a little bit to your next round of funding. And curious, you know, how you're thinking about that and if, if you're comfortable sharing. And what, what do you view as the key sure. milestones for you to, 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 to raise that round? And how, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, we raised, uh, what did we raise? What was it? You know it. You remember, what was it, 30 million, <laughs> something like that? I don't yep. even remember yep. that. Yes. It was 28, yep. 29, yeah, in our Series A. And it was post-bubble. So that was good, right? Phenomenal. The Series A post-bubble at that. that it was good because it gives us a long run, a long run. So we have plenty of cash on our balance sheet to make this work. Uh, we need to prove that the model works. I need to have one or two pilots we're going to, if we, so if we sign this deal with one of the two, we're talking to the two biggest health plans in the United States. Let's just leave it to that. And one of them, uh, I mean, Optum is one of our investors. So that helps too. If we close one of these deals, I want to go out and raise money right away because then I really want to conquer the world. I, there's companies I would like to buy in the substance abuse space that are, I know are struggling and they're, they're great people, great companies. When I say they're struggling, it's not because the model doesn't work. It's because they don't have, in my opinion, the holistic approach that we have. So I would like to buy a couple of these companies and I would like to expand if we close this. But for now... You know, I don't wake up every morning thinking about how I'm going to raise the next money. Otherwise, I don't sleep well at night. And as you notice, I have an R <laughs> ring too. So I have to, I have to pay. It tells me, bad, bad, bad. You didn't sleep well at your age. You need more attention to that. So uh, it's, uh, it, I'm not thinking that much at the next round. I'm, I'm probably, I don't know, maybe I'll do a strategic one. It's possible. There are some strategic mm. that I want to speak to health plans. I mean, I love to do around with some health plans and, you know, just bring together a bunch of strategic groups. At JP Morgan, I'm going to organize a big dinner here at our place and I'll have some of the strategic that I'm interested in. And that's when I'm going to start talking about it. We still have okay. plenty of time to go, but probably the strategic route is when this is not. I, I, I'm, I was surprised that we were able to raise all that money because we were very open about what we are and how we do it. This is not, we're not, we're not an AI company. We're not like what's cool now. This is a service driven company, high volume, probably low margins. I'm pleasantly surprised that the margins are higher than what I thought, but it's a tough business to build. Mm -hmm. really tough business to build. So a strategic is probably more patient than a venture capitalist with all due respect to the venture capitalist. I mean, it's no, it's nothing against it. It's just, it's a different mind well, frame. Giovanni, you've had a lot of experience raising from strategics. You and I have done a number of deals <laughs> together over the years, you know, yeah, one day we'll show the scars. You have a lot. I have, I have like twenty yeah, on my so, back. So for yes. the uh, budding entrepreneur out there listening in on this podcast today, you know what? Are, what are the the do's and don'ts that you've thought about when taking money from strategics? You know, <laughs> maybe just the top okay. one or two do's and don'ts for each. Yeah. Top one or two. Well, first, the top one is don't overthink it. 
I mean, really, don't overthink it. It's just money mm. at one point coming down. My position is always the initial money has to come from VCs because they're smart. I mean, it can be difficult. Sometimes they're <laughs> overreactive, uh, you know, but they're smart. They're just smart people. Greg's nodding, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it's, it's the reality, right? It's smart money. And uh, it's worth uh, it's worth uh, it's worth the money, right? Totally. It's so start with VCs. They're going to help, especially if you're a first time entrepreneur. Especially if you're a first time entrepreneur. If I didn't help have help at Relay, I would have never made it. If I didn't have a Castlight, I would have never made it. Actually, I could say the same for all my companies. So number one, number two is. If you're once you're thinking, so bring in a good venture capitalist and think with them as what's the right strategic and make sure that's the second thing of the to do's, make sure you align the incentives in the right way. Warrants are a good thing. Don't get cheap on warrants. Do not get cheap on that. Warrants align incentives. What you need to do is make sure you structure the warrants very well. Dilution is not that bad. I mean, at the end of the day, look, I did fine in life and I got diluted a lot in my companies. I mean, if you build something big. It won't matter. It's just yeah. people get hooked. Yeah. And they like, oh, I'm, it's 1.5% versus 2% and give me a break. Give it 2% if it lets you build a company, but set the right milestones and keep them hooked on that. The right strategy with the right milestones can change your company. The not to do is... When you're structuring the warrants, and I know Greg will not like this, don't listen to the <laughs> Really, go on your own. That's when you go on your own because nobody like you knows how to build your business and how the strategic can work with. And the VCs will always try to protect the dilution because that's what they owe it to their limited partners and all that. That's where your interests are not completely aligned. They're aligned because they want to build a big company. But, you know, you still probably own 25% of the company. So for you to get a little bit diluted or 20% of the company doesn't really matter that much. Yeah. It's the difference between being filthy rich or rich, you know. And for a venture capitalist, <laughs> every percentage means something because they're, you know, spreading their risk. So don't listen to them. <laughs> try to drive them. Try to convince them. Good and advice. try to get to. Yes. What a master, master class point. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, yeah, everybody, obviously, there's lots of different venture capitalists in the world. But I do think that strategics are can be enormously value creating, right? And and so having the right places where they where the incentives are aligned. I think like you said, I, we've dealt with a lot of strategics in our portfolio companies. I dealt with them when I was an entrepreneur. You know, having them in the middle rounds, right, I think is is really where they shine, right? You know, early enough that it that they can move the needle, but late enough that they're they're not going to be they're going to have their own perspectives on the business that are very narrow to their yeah. own company, right? And so you don't want to overly weight the one perspective, you know, because every 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 big company is a snowflake, right? And so that's the one thing that I would say watch out for for those entrepreneurs who are listening. Yeah, right, I, is that yeah. totally agree. Can be, you have yeah. have their own unique perspectives. Yeah. Oh, and then there's one Please. more. Not Please. to do. Sorry, this is very important. Pretty much every strategic will ask you for warrants upfront just by signing a contract with you. Don't do that. That mm. is not, no. They have to sweat to get their warrants. Make it sure. And the more you're tough, the more they're like you. Don't worry about that. They're not going to pull out. If they want to do a contract with you, they're not going to pull out because you're being tough on the warrants. But everybody comes to me and says, I want warrants 
right up front just because I'm doing a deal with you. And then you make the board the bad guys and you say, ah, you're killing me. There's no way I can convince my board. There's no way. I would <laughs> love to do it, but there's no way I can do it. Don't do that because you're disincentivizing them to work. Yeah, for these you. are great points, Giovanni. I right. mean, on these warrants, let's also not forget you get into the whole negotiation around are they preferred stock warrants? Are they common stock warrants? Are they penny warrants? Is the strike price the 409A value? Is it the last round preferred price? And entrepreneurs just need to be mindful there are trade offs here. Uh, and, and I couldn't echo more the comment about, look, try to avoid fully vested warrants up front. Let's tie them to milestones and value creation events. And and it, the value they're going to bring is going to be enormous enough that it will more than pay for itself in the, in the dilution you take. But it is important to structure them right. Ideally, from an entrepreneur's perspective and from the VC's perspective, these would be common stock warrants, right? They would not add additional liquidation preference to the top of the stack on top of the common, but rather they would be common. And if the common makes money, those warrants should be in the money. And so I, I like to try to push for that where I can, uh, but oftentimes time strategics insist on preferred equity and then it becomes an interesting negotiation um, so something to be mindful of i might have been lucky but i never i would never have to give away preferred i, I think never yeah Giovanni, you've certainly been yeah. <laughs> i had a good lawyer i had a good lawyer that's why uh, i I, appre I appreciate that one awesome. other final do don't callie just yeah. because you and i have talked about this and i know greg greg would echo this as well the other the other big don't is strategics oftentimes will insist on a right of first offer, the right to acquire the company at either a set price or on some set terms. And you want to avoid that like the plague, entrepreneurs out there. I mean, to the extent you have to give any sort of right, do it as a yeah. right of first notice. It's okay. Giovanni and I did this in his last company. <laughs> yeah. We'll give you notice that we're, yeah. we're getting an M&A deal. We'll notice. give you notice that we've gotten an unsolicited bid. Uh, you know, we can fight about what goes in that notice, but that is a far superior outcome than a right of first offer because a right of first offer basically yeah. ensures that no one will ever bid oh. against the, against that right of first offer. You have foreclosed your opportunity yeah. to market check the value of your business. So be mindful of that entrepreneurs as, as you navigate these strategic warrants, uh, because I've seen so many fall into that trap and, and Greg, welcome your thoughts. Kahali, you've, you've done this many times. And yeah, please. Yeah. Well, I have to I have to plug um, if you are a founder and you are thinking about raising from CVCs and strategics, I have a blog post of 75 strategic healthcare investors broken into those that are with healthcare systems, health plans, pharma devices, etc. So check out my blog. HallieTecco.com. <laughs> Sorry to self-promote, but it is a very helpful blog yeah. post um, if you're thinking about strategics. Yeah, yeah correct. Correct. Oh, wow. Yeah, you, I will check it. It's yes. an amazing post. It's an I amazing I will send post. it to you. And I do have, I do, if, if we're ready to move on, I do have kind of one final question because I think we are sure. running on time. Okay, Giovanni, you've sold companies. You've taken companies public. Where do you see kind of the exit opportunity for Vanna Health? Ah, it's a good question. I'm, I never think, I really never think of an exit. Probably will be bought. That's probably, let me put it this way, having taken companies public or having been on one public and one ready to go and then sold, uh, I, one thing I can promise you, I am not going to be the CEO of a publicly traded company ever <laughs> again, ever, ever again. Is if you're an entrepreneur, well, so I, I don't want to generalize. There's some entrepreneurs, obviously, that are great at both. 
I just can't stand how a Wall Street looks at companies and it's just not it's just it's just not my cup of tea. So Vanna will probably be bought at one point and maybe a private equity company, you know, and uh, that wants to expand. There are a lot of private equity company now coming into the behavioral health space. I'm already talking to some of them. That's why I'm saying that, that are looking at, you know, adding a specific SMI piece to what they have. It's going to be a precious piece of real estate if we execute because there's nobody else really doing it. And so it, that's probably what our exit will look like. But I don't know. I mean, there's still a long way. We're two years old. I mean, two yeah. years. It's yeah. the average of my company has been six to yeah. seven years. So, in this case, though, who are who who are like the world of acquirers for a services business like this? Health plans, uh, pub, uh, private equity firms. Uh, if we execute, I put on my advisory board, which is very actually after this meeting, I have my advisory board meeting a bunch of pharma people because we're going to have a set of patients that are really interesting to them, really, really interesting to them. So uh, CROs, now there's a lot of people. And then if we decide at one point, which I would like to go internationally, then there's even more there. And internationally, that would be interesting too, because in us, in a one payer system, our model will work extremely well, extremely well. So I've been in conversation with people in Italy and Germany that could be interested in this. Great. Well, Giovanni, thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your exciting new company. We wish you all the best, although you don't need any luck. (laughs) Um, And Greg, thank you so much for your insights and for being here today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. And last thing for entrepreneurs, remember always, no matter how good you are, 90% is truly luck. Right place, right (laughs) moment, right time. Don't get yourself carried away. We're just lucky people. So... It all works out. And thank you. It was an honor to be here. And that's closing time for today. A huge thanks to our partners at Fenwick for underwriting this show. Recording, editing, and audio mixing by Kyle Moore. Thanks to our guests and to you, our listeners, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And check out our website, closingtimepodcast.com for more exclusive content. Until next time, this is Hallie Tecco and Michael Esquivel for Closing Time. 